Welcome to the Hat Soil Health Podcast, a production of Hoosier Ag Today and the Indiana Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, a program of the Indiana Conservation Partnership. In each episode, we spotlight the numerous efforts around Indiana by CCSI and its many partners to improve soil health on Indiana cropland. Today, part two of a conversation with two southwestern Indiana families who use regenerative agriculture practices on their farms. In this episode, they share stories about some of the challenges they faced, as well as their solutions to those challenges. They also share insight you can use when building soil health on your farm. Now, here's your host, Elise Koning. Thanks for joining us for part two of Stories from Farm Families. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I invite you to go back an episode and check out the conversation with John Bittner, Pat Bittner, Ronald Kruger, and Aaron Kruger as they share their farm stories and experiences with regenerative agriculture. Now let's start where we left off in part one with John Bittner discussing the farm he runs with his son, Pat. And Patrick says he wants to go back to uh pasture protein. He's just going back to what Dad was doing. Uh, livestock, producing uh, forage crops for him, hay, and you're into a rotation. Um, that was really a selling meat and milk off of that farm until um, I had a back injury. Uh, it was really, a, I think, um, probably the best way to handle the land because we have uh, some from very steep hills that we have to take care of and uh, with uh, that rotation and with livestock that probably if we can go back to that it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting uh, being modern and now put it in reverse and going back what dad did you know it's really interesting how history can kind of cycle around, uh, but throughout history there are challenges with these kinds of systems, and I want to dive into that next and um, ask what challenges have you faced with these systems, whether now or in the past? What did you learn from that? And if there's anything that you would have changed, what would you have changed? Well, I've, I've had one other thought is that uh, Patrick mentioned we're discovering that there's livestock in the soil. All the biological uh, protozoa and bacteria and nematodes and so forth. If you've ever known someone or if you've experienced yourself taking an antibiotic and lousing up your indigestion, killing off the bacteria and uh, what's in your digestive system and try to get back to normal. I remember an incident uh, we had a cow, uh, one of our favorite cows, all white, Holstein, and she shoved a 10 by 10 door open and got into the soybeans. And she filled up on soybeans, but the problem was she couldn't regurgitate them, nor could she pass them. So we had the doc slit her stomach open, put a darning hoop, um, uh, uh, um, to hold the opening open, he reached in and scooped those uh, soybeans out of her uh, stomach. And to get her to um, get her stomach biome 
growing again, all the bacteria and whatever else is in her stomach. He suggested we catch a cow chewing her cud and get the cud from a cow and, and put it in her mouth. And that's how we got her to live. So it's the same way with us. And if we ignore what's in the soil, I think we're foolish. Just using the soil as an anchor for the plant and feeding it uh, artificial food is like hydroponics. There's a better way and a more, more nutritious product that will come from those plants. And why, why should you poke fun at Mother Nature or try not to go along with Mother Nature? I think you'll find yourself in trouble. So challenges that we've experienced uh, since going down this regenerative path, um, I would say that um, the challenges we have are is getting a cover crop out early enough uh, after the cash crop. We, we chase the combine, but it's just the seasons, you know, we plant by temperature. Uh, so we're not trying to be the first ones out there and um, getting that cover crop in as early as possible that's that's been a challenge we we've never had a cover crop failure uh, but we'd like it taller going into the dormant season over winter uh, to stop um, residue from shifting and things like that and and to armor the soil during the winter months and stuff that's been a challenge um, we're learning um, when we plant green there's years that I'll plant ahead of the crimper this year i had a little bit less grass in my mix and the legumes especially the hairy vetch because of all the rain really expressed itself and i could plant through it but if dad crimped in front of me it was just easier so you know we learned those kind of things but i think the the challenges that a lot of people experience um, where they think they try it and they say well this doesn't work and that uh, even though they've had crop failures and they next year keep planting crops but with cover crops they have a, a challenge where they thought it cost them a cash crop they don't ever do it again and I think a lot of that as I've been on this journey and trying to figure this out and learning from some of the experts out there is because they tried it without either a talking to another regenerative farmer who's been doing it for a while or taking the time to learn this system because it is a system no different than conventional is a system and, and when you you can't pick and choose the parts and pieces of a system and expect it to work and uh, so i mean that's that's been our biggest challenges i've just been fortunate that um you know going to the national no-till and I guess uh, the third year I went, I, I convinced my dad to go, and, and we went up there. And on a Tuesday night, if you've never been to it, it's a meet and greet after you register. And I should have bought a lottery ticket that day because it, it took me three years to convince daddy should go to it. And we were at a table pre-COVID. They had the big tables with, you could sit about 10 or 12 people down. And uh, we were sitting there, my mom had went along and a couple of my cousins and my wife went. And we're sitting there and uh, this guy that was pretty animated sat down next to me and started talking to me and I knew, he knew what he was talking about pretty quick. It was Ray Archuleta, nationally known. I didn't know him, but 
I got to know him real quick. And uh, Ray sat down and started talking. And then uh, probably 30 minutes later, this other guy uh, sat down, Bib Overhaul's big guy. Started talking to him. I didn't know who he was. It was Dave Brandt. And then uh, Vince Blake from Canada, the three were the big speakers that year, all sat at our table for probably an hour and a half to almost two hours, and crowds started gathering around, and uh, it was just amazing. We learned more that evening than we did the whole rest of the four-day event, and it, and it reinforced. I mean, uh, Dad, I think, went from being uh, cautiously optimistic of the crazy things I was doing to being an evangelist for it. And at 82 years old, he can walk up to a conventional and guy and say, why aren't you doing this? And they'll, yeah, I'm not sure why. Where if I did it, it might be a confrontation, right? So um, it, it's, it's something that dad noticed right off too, is that regenerative guys will tell you about their success and their failures and they're willing to share. Where that's not the case uh, necessarily with all conventional guys and I think you know with our some of our government programs like crop insurance and that they currently the way they're set up they incent poor soil stewardship and to get more than one generation active on a farm you have to keep expanding bigger and bigger because commodity cropping conventionally is high risk mm -hmm. low margin and with regenerative, um, it, it changes the whole, the whole landscape and gives a lot more opportunities. And yes, I'm trying to go back uh, to introducing livestock and that and, and want to market directly. And the reason is, is one of the early on classes I went to by understanding ag was at Seven Sons Farm up in Northern Indiana. And the story behind that farm is incredible. Growing up, they had 1,500 acres, and the father worked a part-time job when the boys were too young to help. Today, they have only 500 acres, have 35-plus full-time employees, plus all seven sons, their wives, and their kids working on this farm and, and being successful doing pastured protein selling directly. And you know, during the class, and I have a finance background, is what my degree in college was. Um, the second son, Blaine, the title of his presentation was How to Net 5,000 an Acre. Well, that got my attention. <laughs> uh, that would get my attention too. And, uh, you know, learning their story and what they're doing is, is amazing. And the cool thing is, is not only are, is the whole family working together and being extremely successful, but they're not only rebuilding their farm regeneratively, they're rebuilding the community. And it's just a total win situation and they're producing high quality nutrient dense food. And we don't have that today in the supermarkets. It's not the supermarkets fault. It's, you know, when you ship a tomato that was picked green in California, halfway across the country, and get it in the supermarket and they gas it to get it to start turning red, it's not nutritious for two reasons. One, the soil that they're growing in is degraded because of the way we're farming, cultivating and using iron and everything. And secondly, fruits and vegetables don't get their nutrition until right when they're getting ripe. That's when they take up the minerals in that. 
and in a degraded soil the plant can't get to that it's all locked up with the clays in that in a regenerative soil where you've got active biology in that it it brings that back to it so it's a regenerative ag is is not a fad it's a movement farmer driven and and it's going to change it's going to fix a lot of problems Let's turn to the Krugers now. I want to learn about some of the challenges you faced, what you've learned from those, and then if there's anything that you would have wanted to change, um, what would that have been? I'll highlight first one challenge. It's a psychological challenge, but is patience. Uh, with all of these practices, you cannot be the first one out in the spring, and you have to be in it for the long haul. And by that I mean, you know, one of our major problems we have is voles. And even with them, they, you know, they're cyclical and that one year they may be really bad and another year they may be non-existent. And the last few years they've been quite a problem. This year they seem to have disappeared, whether that's because of the perches and maybe the increased raptors we have on the farm or whether it's just a weather happened to freeze them out or flood them out when we had rains in February, I don't know. But one thing about our farm is we do not want to spread a bunch of poison. We don't want to go out there with a vertical tillage tool or with the ripper in the years that they're bad and, you know, basically destroy what we've been building. So that's kind of goes back to the patience of it. You know, we can destroy our soil in a matter of an hour with a piece of tillage equipment, but it takes decades to build that back. And so you have to look at it from the long term and base your decisions off that long term goal even when some years you know you may face challenges like voles where you just want to go out there and restart um, and also along with that you know planting into the high biomass covers like we are I have learned that we can't plant corn in April uh, I would say over the course of my five years managing the whole farm our corn in April probably has yielded 20 to 30 bushel less just from the pure fact it's still usually a little cool and wet in April and you go planting into that high biomass cover the stand is going to be terrible um, you know it might still be 70 80 percent might still yield fairly decent but it it has not yielded as well compared to when we wait plant in the middle of May which if you look at university data they still suggest, I think, like May 7th through 9th is still the optimal time for planting corn. A lot of times we're, like this year, May 25th, May 26th, letting those covers get bigger uh, so that they can help suppress weeds, but also let the ground warm. Underneath those covers, I will never, I'll always argue with somebody if they say cover crop ground is cold and wet. I would say it's more you know, moderate as far as the moisture because, you know, that cover crop's pulling up moisture and that it's cool. It's not cold, but it is cool because that ground is shaded, but at the same time, the biological activity somewhat stimulates the temperature of that ground where it is not as cold as you would think it is. And then kind of, this is more of an equipment challenge we've had, but planting into high biomass covers several years ago, we had problems dragging up wads. The especially if you're using vetch and peas and you know taller varieties of rye, it wants to hang up on the two by two frames, it wants to drag up in the closing wheels, 
it wants to drag up on the standard. We side dress our corn with a liquid applicator. It wanted to drag up in the knives. And so we've had to kind of go back to the drawing board and you know we've changed our closing wheels and put hub covers on them and that's seemed to clean up that problem. Uh, we've crimped before planting and gotten rid of the problem of it hanging up on the two by two frames. Now we've gone to infrared and we're gonna take the two by two off completely um, to just let everything free flow. Uh, we've gone to back swept knives on the fertilizer applicator and also we've found that if you run if you run the opposite way that it was crimped, it will not drag up. Don't, I don't know why, but it, it'll just cut through and with the backswept knives, it will not pick up any trash. Um, and that's a lot of the things that if I could go back in time, we probably would have done a little more diligence on how the equipment was set up and more thinking into that to kind of eliminate some of those years that we had those headaches there. Ronald, what have you been seeing with challenges? Well, first thing is a tendency that I have, I have to correct Aaron. He called it trash that drags up. Well, it's really beneficial residue. <laughs> but I'm sure that slipped out without him thinking about it because he's corrected me on that particular issue before. But he covered most of them that I can think of that have been problems that, uh, uh, that we've encountered. And uh, uh, like he kind of touched on, uh, didn't elaborate on it, but we have tried to encourage more uh, uh, rapture type birds or, or uh, and also uh, we don't in really go out and encourage, but we used to have a fellow that trapped coyotes for us on our farm and uh, we've stopped that, but again, to, to help control the uh, voles through the natural process. Uh, and we are seeing a few bobcats show up on one of our rent farms, so uh, uh, that's another good vole control person, or uh, animal. And, uh, but again, those different things of, that if you let nature work within its own, it seems to be more beneficial than sometimes doing the artificial uh, like Aaron said we don't really like to put out rodent poison and things of that nature to try to control these holes but uh, again this year as he mentioned a while ago that we really aren't seeing much of a problem with them and I think some of it is because of the encouragement of natural predators to uh, take care of them and I think I touched on it a while ago in my comments about not using an, an, an insecticide on uh, soybean seed and that seemed to take care of the slug problem that we had the one year and uh, uh, so again it's just it's one of those situations where uh, the regenerative practices that are involved in no-till cover crops and planting green, which that was kind of a one that when Aaron suggested we start doing this uh, planting green, I thought, how's that going to happen? But then again, some of the other benefits that we see is Aaron's always out digging and checking things and, and uh, you dig up a uh, 
shovel full of our soil and check the earthworm content and sometimes uh, hopefully don't get caught at it but step across the property line and dig into a conventional field and, and there's hardly no earthworms and you've got a whole shovel full of earthworms uh, in, in your field you've been using uh, cover crops and no-tilling and so those are some benefits and those earthworms are a better tillage tool than any piece of iron that has ever been built I think <laughs> and uh, so it, it's it's a process of letting nature work and and as Mr. Bittner uh, or both Bittners actually referred to a while ago a lot of you know the farms like I've mentioned when I the farm I grew up on we had several different enterprises on that farm but we you know, and through that process, we did a lot more crop rotation and natural uh, soil conservation than we do today. Because a lot, most grain farmers, I mean, well, some of them still grow wheat, uh, and on some some years, but some a lot are just corn and beans. And if you aren't using a no-till cover crop system, why you got at least six or eight or six or seven months possibly where that soil is laying uh, un with no cover on and uh, uh, very subject to erosion and, and uh, the breakdown of soil, the soil molecular uh, structure of the soil. And I can attest to that. Aaron is using cover crops on some river bottom ground that is very tight soil and we used to think we were really doing something. We'd use a four-wheel tra drive tractor and uh, burn a lot of fuel running a ripper through it and thinking, and especially on a dry fall, we think, boy, we're really doing something, pulling up those big old chunks. But a lot of times in the spring, those chunks might still be there. If they weren't there, that soil had melted back together and you couldn't tell that you had done a d uh, deep tillage on it. So. Uh, what it told me was you're spending a lot of money and wearing out a lot of equipment uh, doing something that really don't benefit you because we're getting better stands and better crops and water infiltration into those fields uh, which erosion is not much of a problem but you'd be surprised sometimes how much soil actually moves on flat ground uh, even though it's not in a flood plain or you know where you get the flood water from a river uh, but those are some of the things that I've seen and some of the challenges that we've tried to overcome and and uh, of course in my situation I'll let Aaron initiate those and you're listening to the Hat Soil Health Podcast brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative with Vanderburg County Farmers Pat Bittner and his father John Bittner and Gibson County Farmers Aaron Kruger and his grandpa Ronald Kruger. So we've gone through a lot of benefits and we've seen that you've had some challenges that you've overcome and you've learned from. Let's switch gears now and think about how we can help others who are interested in regenerative ag but maybe don't quite know where to start. So I want to start with John and ask you 
what would you tell your peers who own land and lease it out or are farming with the next generation about how to get started in regenerative ag or how to encourage the farmers who rent from them to start into those practices? Well, I'm not sure how I would answer that. Uh, I think a, uh, a landowner should um, decide if they are concerned about their land for future generations. As old as I am, I know I'm going to eventually die. And the next generation um, will need food and uh, the benefits of wildlife and what goes with it. And uh, there's a greater power created the world. And they didn't design a fertilizer factory with it and uh, or pesticides. Seemed like nature, if you leave it alone, uh, I'm thinking of Chernobyl, the um, nuclear accident over in the Ukraine, uh, where they tried to get too much energy out of there and over overrode the fail safes on it. Uh, thing burned up and uh, uh, spewed a lot of radiation, and uh, it didn't take long for nature to start reclaiming that all by itself. So I would encourage a owner to realize that. If you're doing something that uh, nature didn't do all these years, you know, our, our precious soil, when it was prairie, it didn't have any fertilizer or pesticides, and it seemed to get better every year. Or if you look at the woods, there's big plants there, and we don't really fertilize that. Uh, just if you can work with nature and, and, and get your food and nutrition from there, I think it knows how to do that by itself. So I think a, uh, as a, a uh, person that owns land, they need to be looking at their, their tenants or if they're farming to themselves, is, uh, am I working with nature or am I doing something here and, and uh, burning up the soil in my lifetime or within a short period of time? And I, I think that's something I would encourage a person to look at. Okay, and Ronald, what would you tell landowners and people who are farming with the next generation? Well, uh, yes, I'll start with this comment. I know several people, uh, farmers, that several years ago, some in some cases probably 10, 15, maybe even longer, uh, that tried no-till and uh, well cover crops really weren't too common back 10-15 years ago or maybe a little longer but on the other hand of course again cover crops uh, earlier in this uh, conversation Mr. Bittner had mentioned uh, something about his his dad even using cover crop and we did that, or my dad did that, especially where we would take silage off of the farm. Why, uh, dad would make sure that got seeded back into rye, but then plow it down the next spring and and uh, plowed in well organic matter and things of like that. But what I'm talking about mainly here with some of the people that I uh, have in mind here. Oh, I tried cover crops, or I tried no-till and cover crops. 10, 15 years ago, and my yields went down, and I can't take that. So uh, uh, 
I'm not going to try it again. But uh, in those in this time frame I'm talking about, especially uh, from what I have seen, there's a lot of changes in methodology and uh, opportunities of learning how to better take advantage of no-till and cover crops. And there's a, equipment on the market that makes it more possible. Uh, as uh, my grandson mentioned a while ago, we made several changes to the planter uh, that he uses. And uh, also, when I think back, of course, go back too many years here, uh, but some of the planters that we had years ago would never work uh, as the planters do today to uh, plant into especially cover crops. And, you know, you needed uh, loose worked soil to plant into them, but the planters today are capable, and in some cases you may have to add some aftermarket equipment to them to make them work a little better, but... Uh, but anyway, those things are available, which were not available. But uh, it does bother me to a certain extent to see some people that farm some of this land that, and really abuse it. And uh, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, another I got pick up this information from another no-tiller and cover crop that uh, we know quite a bit that... Uh, uh, has, has told me not too long ago that there are actually places in Europe that they have completely farmed the life out of soil and, and we don't want that to happen here in the United States because uh, we are considered the breadbasket of the world and I'd like to think that that continues on because uh, we know there are certain countries and what have you in the world that starvation is very very common and uh, uh, of course, again, like Mr. Bittner said, I'm old enough, I probably won't see some of the things that could be coming down the pike here if, if we don't make some changes. And uh, again, Mr. Bittner touched on it a while ago. I would rather be a part of, and I'm glad to see my grandson being a part of a generation that's not being forced into minimizing polluting our soils with using too much insecticide, too much herbicides, and polluting our water uh, streams. Uh, the Wabash River is considered the Indiana River. And uh, uh, back in the 80s, when I was on the Salt Water Board and would go to conventions and things of that, there was big concern about cleaning the Wabash River up. And uh, I was to a meeting not too long ago, this, actually this year, that we still have uh, the Wabash River is one of the most polluted rivers in the country, in the United States. And uh, that does not make me proud of that. Uh, don't misunderstand me. The problem is not only here in the southern part of the state, but uh, Wabash River, you know, is the boundary from Terre Haute down to the where it goes into the Ohio between Indiana and Illinois. So Illinois is involved in the pollution process to some extent, but then also the upper part of the Wabash River, which cuts over to the northeast side of uh, Indiana, uh, 
it contributes to it too. So, uh, but anyway, uh, we have some landlords out there that are interested in taking care of their soil, and some are interested in the the top rental payment. Uh, I'm talking about absentee landlords, but people that own their own land and are farming their own land. Uh, those are the ones that I really can't understand why they can't become more interested in, in s saving our natural resources. We also want to talk about people who may be interested in regenerative agriculture. We want to talk to people who may be interested in regenerative agriculture. So Aaron and Pat, what words of wisdom would you have for people who are interested in getting involved in this process? I would say uh, one of the best ways uh, for someone that's wanting to get interested in regenerative ag or just start the process of maybe looking into some of these different aspects which we're using is to just start making connections. There is a vast network of people across the country that are doing these practices, but a lot of times you don't necessarily get connected with them until you know you find the right avenues. Uh, so just going to meetings, going to the no-till conference uh, here in Indiana, reaching out to uh, CCSI or the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, or even just going to your local NRCS office, they can probably get you in contact with farmers that are doing these practices or other experts in the field that can maybe help start to walk you through some of these things. And then I would say as far as beginning to implement these practices, just take a small portion of the farm, maybe convince dad or grandpa to let you, you know, have a have the back forty that's way back away from the road, uh and and just try it and uh see how it works for you on your farm and see what kind of learning you can do there and then you know go from there and expand. Yeah, I agree with what Aaron was saying. I I guess um you know, if if you like to read uh, a book that probably should be required reading for anybody that has the ability to get in a tractor and run it is um, a book called A Soil Health, The Soil Owner's Manual by John Steika. It's a short book. It's less than $12. You can read it in a weekend. It probably gives you the best overall um, understanding of what regenerative ag is in a very easy-to-read format. And then if you're um, internet savvy, um, YouTube University, you can get a PhD in regenerative ag with all, everything that's out there on YouTube about it, uh, podcast, um, and then soil health events. Like Aaron said, that the NRCS and SWCD and CCSI puts on, all you have to do is give them your email address and you'll hear about every one of them that's going on in probably a three-state area. Or if you see a farmer that is, you know, that's planting into what looks like a hay field, I can guarantee you if you stop in, they're more than willing to talk about it. It's something about farmers that are regenerate into the regenerative. They're very willing and and actually like talking about it because I think um, it's exciting and uh, it makes farming fun again. As we start to wrap up our conversation, which has been really insightful, I've learned a lot about these different processes and getting involved in regenerative agriculture and how you can work together as a family to improve the soil and take care of our natural resources. I want to ask everybody for their final thoughts. 
And for that, let's start with Aaron Kruger. He's been working with his grandpa, Ronald Kruger, on the land for several years. And uh, just give us some final thoughts about what we've talked about today and uh, some takeaways you'd like the audience to think about. Kind of a simple takeaway, and it's been alluded to several times. And I used to even have a math teacher that fifth grade match teacher that would preach it to us but is the kiss rule you know keep it simple stupid uh don't i wouldn't necessarily advise anyone just to jump in whole hog on a lot of these practices like i said you know take the back 40 and and try it and see how well it works on your farm and how you can improve upon it and just take it step by step and just kind of figure out you know what works on my farm and on pat's farm you know, works real well in our area and on our farms, but it might not in different parts of the state or region or country. So you just kind of have to start trying some of these things and figure out what works best for you. But at least the one thing that I know both of us are trying to do and our families are trying to do is we're at least trying. And there's there's a lot in just trying to improve the soil and improve our land. And that's kind of the, sometimes is the hardest step, I think, for some people. It's just even taking that step just to start trying. Let's go to Pat Bittner next. I agree again with what Aaron was saying, and uh, it's the what works on our farms may not work on somebody else's farm, and that's the number one principle of regenerative ag is context. So be careful uh, when you're starting out that uh, maybe you did see something on YouTube or you you went to a soil health event and the farmer says here's the mix I put out and this is how I do it that may not work on your farm Um, and so that's again part of talking to farmers in your area that are doing this um, and sharing information if if you get a good understanding of the system and and talk to somebody that's local to your area that's already doing it you can avoid a lot of headaches and i think you know that the benefit of the regenerative bag is that it it changes the paradigm at what i hear a lot of farmers say that you know if their son or their daughter want to start coming back to the farm well we got to pick up another 500 to a thousand acres and with regenerative farming you don't necessarily have to do that because you can increase your profitability by lowering all your cost and it opens up a lot of other opportunities whether that would be livestock or maybe doing some specialty grains Um, russell hendrick down in north carolina does uh sells uh, jimmy red corn to distilleries and I've heard him, he's a pretty funny guy, and he said liquid corn is a lot more profitable than commodity corn at the grain elevator. So, I mean, there's just, you'll find there's a lot of different options that would allow the next generation to come back to the farm. And keeping farmland as farmland and not development, I think, is going to be critical in the years coming because we've, we've lost so much farmland to industrial development and stuff, and we need to... We need to keep it as a farm because food and water are two things that we're going to need as long as there's life on earth. Let's go to John Bittner next, Pat's dad. And I'd like to ask for your final thoughts as well as your thoughts on what it means for the next generation of your family to continue farming your land. 
Well, I've always thought of a farm as like a diamond, even the Hope Diamond, which is famous. It increases in value every year, it seems like, because more people might want it, and it's unique. But it doesn't return an income. And so I think you look at your farm as, uh, how long did it take to make that topsoil? Is it precious? Should we take care of it? So I'm very pleased that someone is interested in taking care of the farm and passing it on for the future community. That's about it for me. <laughs> All right. And, and last but definitely not least, we have Ronald Kruger, Aaron's grandpa. What words of wisdom do you have for the audience, and what does it mean for you for the next generations to be farming your land? Well, uh, I'm definitely glad that Aaron has decided to come back to the farm and has implemented these practices. Again, my dad, myself, uh, my son, Aaron's dad, uh, all of us have been interested in improving uh, the farm and the farmland, even land that we rent and all. And uh, uh, so I'm very glad to uh, see Aaron continue on with that and take it to, as I referred to earlier, the next step, the next level, because a lot of the stuff that we've done for years, I refer to more or less as mechanical practices. And uh, now uh, what Aaron's getting into is, well, either regenerative or biological improvement of the soil. And uh, another comment that was I make mentioned about Aaron mentioned a while ago to try things on the back forty where no one can see it, but on our farm uh, it's happened a couple of times this year where people see what we're doing. Actually, one guy stopped me. I was crimping behind Aaron planting, and one of our neighbors uh, stopped me and wanted to talk to me and all he wanted to tell me is I really like to see what Aaron's doing here he said but I just not brave enough to try it myself <laughs> and I hear that from several people and and uh, uh, my response to that is well you need to try it and, and uh, you know start developing a plan and and because uh, it does take a little extra planning and extra management than what to do it the way grandpa did it years ago <laughs> well john pat aaron ronald thank you so much for joining us for the hot soil health podcast it's been a fantastic conversation and i really appreciate everyone sharing your expertise with us thank you thank you thank you it was a pleasure thank you this has been a two-part episode of the Hat Soil Health Podcast. Join us next time for a conversation to help you prepare for harvest. For Who's Your Ag Today, I'm Elise Koning. This episode of the Who's Your Ag Today Soil Health Podcast has been brought to you by the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative. You can learn more about their efforts and see a schedule of events at ccsin.org. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, create your riches below the surface with healthy soil.